Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the cruise of the Hippocampus by Alfred Loomis, and we're on Chapter 9. Chapter 9 Rolling Down to Colon. The Hippocampus has arrived at Colon, Panama, and as I look over the record of her voyage across the Caribbean Sea, I own to a feeling of bitter disappointment. In justice to the reader who has patiently followed the little yawl on her journey from New York, I desired to include in this story an account of a battle with the elements that would dwarf into insignificance every previous happening of the sea. I wanted to be able to say, as I recovered consciousness, I saw the main must go by the board. The mizzen ballooned off into space, the cabin hatch reeled after it, ripped off by the sheer force of the hurricane, and in another minute we were at the mercy of the waves. I thought that it would enhance the dramatic quality of my yarn if it were written on a raft with sharks encircling me and were consigned to the deep in the last of our muscatel bottles. Unfortunately, nothing of this sort occurred. For 550 miles we sailed steamship courses, and for four days of the five that were occupied in the running from Kingston, Jamaica, to the Atlantic terminus of the Panama Canal, we enjoyed weather conditions of the grade A select variety. Nothing could have been more disappointing from the writer's point of view, and nothing more delightful from the navigators. Throughout the entire voyage of the hippocampus, which now draws to a close, I have been the troubled possessor of a sort of dual personality, one part of me is the navigator who offers copious libations to the gods of weather and is the best pleased when conditions are ideal. The other, the writer, who leaves port dolorously, hoping that everything unpleasant and exciting will happen at once. Unfortunately for both sides of my personality, we have experienced mediocre weather and have never been totally and efficaciously shipwrecked. Had we stayed a day longer in Kingston, however, there might have been a thrill or two to write about. For the better part of two weeks that we remained in port, touring the island by motor car, making friends ashore and enduring the harsh treatment of the trade wind, Squib had a premonition that we should come to grief before leaving. So definite did this presentiment become that for the last two days he stayed aboard almost entirely, despite the assurance of Chambers and myself that the yawl could take good care of herself. When, on the morning of August 7th, we slipped our cable and took a party of local yachtsmen for a run around the course in Kingston Harbour, I thought that his premonition would come to fruition. At the outset, it was a three-reef breeze for the two local yachts that left their moorings with us, but we, running down the wind to the turning point off the Myrtle Bank Hotel, carried full sail and carried it nicely. Coming about, however, and starting up the beat to the Palisados, we heeled as we do at sea, and spray came aboard to discomfort those of our guests who were not properly clothed for the occasion. Still, the pots in the galley and the books on the cabin shelves comported themselves with dignity, and we had no thought of shortening sail. But as we neared the upper turning buoy, this thought occurred to us simultaneously with the arrival of a squall. All hands sprang to the mainsail, the halyards rattled through the blocks, and we won our contest with the main strength of the wind by the fraction of a minute. Nothing would disgust me more completely than to strain our spars or rigging in the supposed shelter of a harbour. 
Returning to the Yacht Club anchorage under jib and jigger, we picked up our mooring without making it too evident to bystanders on the shore that we usually do such work under power. Whereupon, finding that Squibb still cherished his notion of impending trouble, we paid farewell calls in relays at no time leaving the yawl unattended. Late the following afternoon, we learned from the local radio station that no disturbances had been reported in the West Indies and decided that the time was ripe to put to sea. Hurricanes, I may say parenthetically, had been pretty much in the back of our minds ever since we had entered the tropics, and not until we reached Jamaica and learned that we were but two days removed from the southern limit of storm tracks had we felt at all easy about them. Now Chambers and I obtained our bill of health from the American consul and returned aboard to find the hippocampus undergoing her usual trade wind contortions. Squib was champing at the bit and the seahorse herself strained at the tether and reared her head in a thoroughly equine manner. She's raring to go, said Squib, and I'm about one jump ahead of nervous prostration. Let's get before something happens. So we got not, however, without starting the motor and breaking the anchor out. And when the two Joes, enjoying the assistance of the power plant but yet pulling hard on the hawser, brought the line half in, they found the underlying reason for Squibb's premonition. The hawser had caught on a piece of hidden wreckage and was chafed two-thirds through. Another day and perhaps another hour in port and we should have gone adrift from our anchor and not even the efforts of the O'Toole boys could have saved us from piling up on the harbour wall. It is such things as this that make us glad to be at sea. On this occasion, we were more than ever glad to have plenty of water beneath and all around us, for we knew that unless the trade wind broke a habit that was established when the earth first started its rotary motion, fair winds would blow us across the Caribbean. We had said goodbye to the old days of beating three miles to gain a mile, and we could read our distance made good from the dial of the patent log. So we anticipated, and so we found it. Moreover, this long jump in open water was extremely interesting from the navigational point of view, as a reader may learn if we will permit a short excursion into the technique of sailing. Cologne lies south by west from Kingston, and if we could have relied on the trade winds blowing from north of east for the entire distance, it might have been a simple matter to lay a course on taking our departure and maintain it throughout, altering only slightly to allow for drift and leeway. Had we started immediately on a south-by-west course, however, and encountered after two or three days a south-easterly slant, we should have been obliged to resume our old business of beating against the wind. There was also the possibility of being set too far to westward by the main currents of the Caribbean and making a landfall to leeward of Cologne, and even of being set down on Portland Rock, which lies 50 miles from Kingston and only 15 off the most direct route to Cologne. Having these things in consideration, we steered a course of south by east immediately after taking our departure from the outermost quay at the entrance to Kingston Harbour. We sailed full and by, the mainsail double reefed, the wind coming down from the east at a strength of 30 or 35 miles an hour. It was rough. Joe Chambers admitted it and opined that there had been too much fizz in the gin fizz he imbibed before leaving. I admitted it. Standing before the galley stove, my legs stretched and my head braced against the hatch cover as I prepared the evening meal, and Joe Squibb, who has the constitution of a horse, sat at the tiller and sang a French ditty. 
He alone was unaffected by the sea, and we all agreed that if it had become the least bit rougher, he should have spoiled the perfect score that we have maintained in 14 weeks of cruising. But as we left shoal water, the seas grew longer and less precipitous, and toward morning, the winds slackened off. This is a pleasant habit which the trade wind has of easing up during the night and permitting the watch below to enjoy its repose. Why it doesn't die away entirely at night as it does almost invariably in Kingston Harbour is something that will have to be left to the meteorologists to explain. The next day at noon, I had difficulty in obtaining my sight for latitude, a circumstance that may seem odd to the sailor who has never cruised below the Tropic of Cancer, for in the higher latitudes, the noon sight is rightly considered as simple as rolling off a log. In latitude 16 degrees 48 minutes north, however, where we were on the 9th day of August, the sun is only 00, 00 degrees 55 minutes south of the observer, and what with finding a spot on the deck that is not shadowed or obscured by sails and rigging, with pointing the sextant directly south, and with making the sun kiss the horizon at the exact moment of local apparent noon, the proceeding is anything but simple. The resulting fix was inexact, but it showed a distance of approximately 75 miles made good from the point of departure, and a course made good of south by three points east, or only one-eighth point of leeway and drift. That afternoon, we enjoyed the most perfect weather of the cruise, for the wind continued to blow from the right direction, the sky was fair, and there was only enough sea running to give the long, easy roll that is one of the delights of small boat sailing. In mid-afternoon, when we shook out both reefs, we voted unanimously that despite the ever-present threat of hurricanes and the general opinion to the contrary, the Caribbean is the ideal sea in which to cruise in summer weather. In the early evening, deeming that we had made sufficient easting, we changed course to South Magnetic and so continued for another 24 hours. At the expiration of this period, we had added another 100 miles to our distance and made good a course of south and three points west. We were then feeling more strongly the westward set of the Yucatan current, as was apparent from the three-eighths of a point divergence between the course sailed and that made good. Nevertheless, we were still well to windward of Colon and I decided on a further change of course to westward, waiting, however, for the result of our afternoon sight for longitude before altering to south by west. During the ensuing night and morning, the weather changed to cloudy with occasional sharp showers, and as the hour drew on to noon, I wondered whether I should be able to get my altitude sight. For some weeks, I had been aware of a growing feeling of irritation every time I attempted to determine our position with reference to the equator, for not only had we chanced to keep our latitude and the declination of the sun virtually identical, but we had found that recourse to the pole star was denied us by banks of cloud which invariably assembled to northward at morning and evening twilight. At the risk of becoming too technical, I may add that I had failed to provide myself with azimuth tables of stars having declinations of more than 23 degrees, and that none of those observable stars having lesser declinations were suitably placed for ascertaining our latitude. Consequently, I was much more elated than the situation would seem to warrant when, at five minutes to twelve, the clouds broke away overhead and I obtained a sight of the sun. As our latitude had now become appreciably lower than the declination of the celestial body, 
There was no difficulty in catching it where it belonged on the northern horizon and in transferring to our chart a fix of whose accuracy I could be certain. So, fortified, we again waited for an afternoon sight and at 5.10 changed course to south-southwest, another point to westward. During this day we sighted our first ship since leaving port and there occurred small incidents which one comes to expect in long-distance cruising. I glanced aloft, for instance, speculating on the strength of an approaching squall, and discovered that the gaff lacing on the mainsail had chafed in two against the lee shrouds, whereupon we lowered and repaired the break while the squall passed by. Late at night, while Squib and I were putting a double reef in the sail on the approach of dirty weather, we accidentally came about, and in so doing, fouled the log line on the rudder. Two dismal, rainy hours passed while I untangled the kinks from the line. On August 12th, our fourth day out of port, the wind shifted to southeast, and we had reason to be thankful that we had kept well upwind from Cologne. Still having the weather gauge, we merely sheeted in, held the tack, and continued on our course, and our noon position showed that we had made our best day's run, 120 miles in 24 hours. By nightfall, when we were within 100 miles of the Isthmus of Panama, the steady breath of the trade wind left us, and we found ourselves becalmed in the centre of a large storm area. Thunder showers volleyed all around us, the barometer pumped alarmingly, as it does on the approach of a hurricane, and we felt the proper time had come to expend some of the 65-cent gasoline with which we had provided ourselves in Jamaica. Two hours of running under power carried us out of the storm centre and into another favourable slant of wind, and we continued under sail until 8 o'clock of August the 13th, when, at the passing of a particularly violent squall, the wind died. As we were debating the advisability of restarting the motor, we saw two water spouts formed eastward of us and brought the discussion to a speedy close. We started up and were not long in putting distance between us and the spouts. Nor, the calm continuing that day and all the ensuing night, did we again stop the motor, chugging along under a leaden sky at our customary speed of five miles an hour, we drew near to the coast of Panama, and at four o'clock, when the sun showed his face for an instant, I obtained my only sight of the day. It checked with our dead reckoning longitude, and continuing on our south-southwest course, I was not too much surprised when an hour later we sighted Manzanillo Point, broad on our port bow, exactly where we wanted it to be. When at dusk the red and white flashing light off Isla Grande showed under the high shore of Manzanillo, we spliced the main brace, and one has to make a perfect landfall after five days in a tossing yawl to understand just how enthusiastically we spliced it. We were still 50 miles from Cologne, and in a continued calm we chugged along, bucking a strong current. It was ideal motor sailing, the moon shining brilliantly through puffy clouds which lacked the ugly menace that had been the chief characteristic of clouds in Cuban waters, and a big lazy swell overtaking us and restricting our horizon as we sank into the hollows. The side lights of a steamship drew near on our starboard quarter and were replaced by a single white light as the ship changed course and bore away to westward. Presently, the red and green lights flashed again into view, and throughout the night we had the companionship of this stranger cruising back and forth but slowly drawing near to harbour, awaiting the coming of the dawn. As daylight strengthened, we saw on our left a series of sweeping hills falling away from the heights behind Manzanillo Point, their valleys swathed in mist, their shadows the deep purple, and their highlights the vivid green which one comes to expect in tropical landscapes. On the right, 
I was surprised, so deficient is my knowledge of geography, to find that in place of the axial range of mountains with which my imagination had provided the isthmus, there was only low ground, such as one may see along the Connecticut shore of the Sound. Ahead, the breakwaters of Limon Bay opened up and we saw through the entrance the smooth harbour and the buildings of Colon and Cristobal. Over Manzanillo, astern of us, there floated a segregated patch of cloud above the grey, horizon-sweeping cumulus. As the sun rose, it glowed into the ruddy hue of embers and displayed a narrow selvage of golden saffron, gleaming like silk. We liked the prospect, and after two months of cruising in foreign waters, felt that we were coming home. Passing between the jetties, we lay to in the examination anchorage, following the example of our nighttime acquaintance, which daylight revealed to be a navy tanker. Presently, a small motorboat, small by comparison with the ships in the harbour, but larger than the 28-foot hippocampus, lay alongside and we were visited by a customs inspector, a measurer and a doctor of the Panama Canal. They were Americans, of course, talking the American language, and they welcomed us heartily to the canal zone. At the rate of 50 a minute, we answered questions relating to our health, our dimensions, and our general intentions. And then we were told that, contrary to the usual custom, we might stand up the bay without a pilot and anchor off the Cristobal waterfront. So we did, and as we swung along astern of the Navy tanker, proceeding slowly under a pilot's charge, I could not resist the temptation to shoot over an impudent question by semaphore. Why did you stick around last night? I asked through the medium of flags, feeling properly rebuked when I received in answer the words, because we wanted to. Perhaps in afterthought, this answer seemed ungracious to the captain of the tanker, for in another moment, his quartermaster sent the message, Who are you? We are the Yawl Hippocampus, I replied, from New York. Kindly repeat the last two words the fluttering flag spelled out, and when I had made the repetition they added, We would be pleased to have you call on us when we have come to dock. As it happened we had no time to make the call, but I met the navigator of the tanker ashore in the afternoon and scolded him roundly for waiting to make a daylight entry into the harbour which, next to New York, is the best lighted in the North Atlantic. He excused himself with the plea that the light on Isla Grande was unreliable, having derived this information clearly from the light list, but we ordinary seamen of the Yule knew that even the finest light will seem unreliable when a violent rainstorm obscures an otherwise perfect night and reduces the visibility to zero. Cristobal is the eastern terminus of the Panama Canal, separated from the Panamanian city of Colón by the tracks of the Panamanian Railroad, and it was off the immense modern docks of Cristobal that we came to anchor, guided by the advice of an American ashore, who first hailed us with, If that's the hippo, we've been looking for you for a long time. After we had raised ourselves to dry them in the morning sunlight, and had thoroughly disorganised ourselves with all manner of wet clothing spread about on deck, we received a friendly call from Percy Van Wagener and Jimmy Powell of the Texas Company. They constitute a self-appointed visiting committee of two to welcome all amateur mariners, whether bound for the South Sea Islands or places less remote, or whether searching for treasure or for rewards more tangible. They were come, they said, not to sell us a thousand tons of crude oil for our bunkers, but to invite us to dinner at the Strangers Club. Every visiting sea captain stops there, we were told, every adventurer, every world celebrity, and we must register in the book that President Harding, the Prince of Wales, and all the rest had written in. Would we come? Will a dog eat meat or a yawl roll in a seaway? 
so the following evening saw us sitting around a rectangular table on the breeze-swept porch of the Strangers' Club, strangers no longer to Powell and von Wagner, nor to our fellow guests E.G. Davidson and Captains Eden and Kohler. Conversation ranged from this to that and was judiciously interrupted by asides to a white-coated server who stood by, pencil in hand, and repeated after us, Martini, Bronx, Planter's Punch, Hague and Hague, and a great many other magical words. The dinner which followed this auspicious opening will linger in my recollection after most other incidents of the cruise have faded from it, for it was the first time in years that I had sat down to a combination of excellent cuisine, schnapps, curacao, and the talk of men whose home is the world, who sail it or roam it with utter disregard to distance. There is a glamour to life in the canal zone, even though it is not entirely spent around the white linens of the Strangers' Club. In a sense, it is a pioneer country, for within five miles of the canal on either side is the rank jungle, a paradise for hunters, yet Colon and Panama City have their cabarets and showgirls and the sophistication of New York. In a glance, one sees the primitive and the ultra-modern, but it is not this contrast, the propinquity, say, of partially clothed San Blas Indian and the partially unclothed Broadway Indian, that arrests the attention. Most impressive is the fact that here, on the edge of South America, we have a miniature of North America. In Cristobal and New Cristobal, we have Americans living in the American way, eating food and wearing clothes imported from the States, thinking American thoughts. The Panamanians may have the tropical manana fever, putting off till the morrow the things that should be done today, taking their siestas and shielding their faces from the sun, but the Americans go at their work and play just as if they were on their native soil. Everything in the canal zone is government-owned, although the landlord sometimes masquerades under the name of the Panamanian Railroad Company. So abundant is the supply of electricity from the immense hydroelectric plant at the Ganton Dam that every closet and every piano in the zone has its lights continually burning to dispel the dampness. The United States, or the Railroad Company, operates a slaughterhouse, a cold storage plant, modern bakeries, laundries, filtration plants, dry docks, machine shops, hospital, everything to fill the ordinary or most unusual need of employee or seafaring transient. Having from a safe distance heard the wartime rumblings of a government-controlled national railway system and having observed the sad disillusionment of those who put their trust in the post office department, I am, by principle, opposed to government ownership and operation. Yet here I see a government organisation working smoothly, silently, and with dispatch combined with the utmost degree of courtesy. A test of any mechanism is its flexibility, and I find here in the Panama Canal an executive machine that handles the smallest yacht with the same absence of fuss that characterises its operations with the largest battleship. We are not sidetracked because we are small, nor are we denied this or that privilege extended to the more remunerative customers of Uncle Sam. On the contrary, we had no sooner come in contact with officialdom than we were made to feel that our needs and our wishes were of paramount importance. If we are not spoiled by official cordiality, we stand in grave danger of being ruined by personal hospitality, for we find here motorboat enthusiasts, followers of the wanderings of Hippocampus who insist on playing host to us and putting themselves at our disposal at any and all times. A. E. Arnold of the Commissary Department is a little grieved at this minute because we believe that he and Mrs. Arnold should be our guests on board before we accept another dinner invitation, 
while H.F. Stevenson, whose friendly Jersey City voice hailed us from the dock as we entered Cristobal, says that he will regard it as a personal insult if we do not make his house our home, either now or at any future visit to the canal. And these are only two of the many who have showed kindnesses upon us. Yesterday afternoon, I took my life in my hands by disposing my body on the after deck of Steve's motorcycle to make a trip to Ganton Lake to ascertain the chances of storing Hippo in fresh water until next spring. Steve drives carefully enough, but he is more used to engine room telegraphs than to handlebar controls, and I have the feeling that at any moment with him may be the last for some incautious pedestrian. However, we made the round trip to the dam successfully, and at Ganton had a highly satisfactory interview with F.W. Carragher, pilot in charge of lighthouses for the Panama Canal. Readers of the National Geographic magazine will recognize in Carragher the nameless Samaritan who rescued the dream ship from a night of drifting when that famous cruiser broke down in Ganton Lake en route from England to the South Sea Islands, rescued her in the motorboat Eunice, a thing of shining brass, and towed her for hours at the alarming speed of $6 an hour. Carragher has always deplored the government regulations that stipulate a cash return for favours rendered even to amateur mariners, and since then has been sympathetically interested in the ambitious wanderings of all craft too small to leave their own harbours. Consequently, he knew all about the hippocampus and her itinerary, and even before the introductions were over, asked me, why did you come around the western end of Cuba? I gave him one of half a dozen reasons that I had on the tip of my tongue, and he replied, it may have helped literature, but it was an error in seamanship. How so? I asked defensively. Going the eastern end, we would have had the wind and current against us. Coming the western way, we had current for us and only calms and waterspouts to bother us. Calms and waterspouts? Well, you are lucky. I've steamboated in there since I was no bigger than a baby hippocampus, and I'd sooner swim up Ganton Spillway than sail from Cape San Antonio to Jamaica when the trade wind is blowing as it usually blows in that vicinity. And now what can I do for you? Timidly, I told him of my plans and aspirations to pass through the canal and dip hippocampus in the waters of the Pacific before storing her somewhere for use another season. Not the easiest thing in the world, said Karinger, but I'll tell you something about the tropics. You can't lay up a boat in the Atlantic or the Pacific because the Toreador will eat her up, and you can't haul her out because the ants will eat her up. The only thing you can do is to leave her in fresh water off my dock where she'll be safe from insects and Indians, and I'll keep an eye on her, have her painted, and her engine kept free from rust, and I'll store her sails and cushions in a dry closet. Does that seem satisfactory? Satisfactory? I was overwhelmed and positively stuttered my thanks. I have grown pretty fond of the little hippo in the last four months, and it had troubled me not a little that I might have to leave her in unsympathetic hands. But now my mind is at rest. On my return trip to Cristobal, perched precariously on the quarterdeck of Steve's motorcycle, Steve told me mercilessly that Carragher would give the yawl a thousand times better care than I could myself, and Steve is as well informed as he is frank. Though it be spoken in a spirit of mean revenge, I feel that the hippocampus is safer for a year in Ganton Lake than I am for another minute of Steve's motorcycle. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. and We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. 
And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.